0: The Athletic
1: Hello and welcome to Aramco F One Focus. The podcast aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. I'm Tim Sylvie, and I wouldn't want to be podcasting alongside anyone other than my two teammates, Sean Virtual Statman Kelly, and racing driver and broadcaster Alex Brundle. Sean, great to chat to you again. Where do we find you this week? I am in my hotel room in Montreal after a rather
2: chilly and rainy Montreal Grand Prix weekend. But the sun, of course, has come out immediately after Formula One has finished for the weekend.
1: Always the way. It did look a little bit blustery out there. And Alex, after a busy week at Le Mans last week, I presume you put your feet up and watched the Canadian Grand Prix on the old telly box?
3: Yeah, I was recovering from the shock of watching a Ferrari strategic victory um, at the Le Mans 24 hours. And uh, yeah, love the Canadian Grand Prix. Really enjoyable wet and dry conditions all weekend. Uh, What a fantastic race.
1: Good stuff. Well, as usual, we've got a thought provoking performance focus with Alex coming up. And I've got a little surprise for the boys in this week's Aramco focus. But first, it's time to hold on to your stat hats as we head into focus number one. That's right, we're going full throttle from the off as we head into Sean's always illuminating stat focus. Sean, we've just had another Max Verstappen victory and masterclass at the Canadian Grand Prix. So, is that where you're taking your inspiration from this week?
2: Yeah, well, it's difficult to look beyond Max Verstappen in Grand Prix racing right now, isn't it, with this level of dominance? I mean, not only. He take his twenty fifth pole position. He passed Nicky Lauda and his potential father in law, Nelson Piquet. But he also won his forty first Grand Prix to match Ayrton Senna's record uh, in Grand Prix racing, as well as of course the one hundredth victory for Red Bull in the sport. But I think most impressively to me, when Max Verstappen crossed the line to win the Canadian Grand Prix here in Montreal, he led his two hundred and twenty fourth consecutive lap which is the longest streak by any F1 driver since Nigel Mansell led 235 in a row, driving that iconic Williams FW14B to the World Championship back in 1992.
1: Well, let's dive into that a little bit more. Could Verstappen's streak be considered more impressive than that one you mentioned of Mansell in the 90s?
2: Well, it's always a matter of opinion, but to me... It is simply because of the fact that Verstappen is not actually driving a car that's as dominant as was Nigel Mansell's. Now, those of a younger generation might say, how can it possibly be more dominant than the car Verstappen is in right now? During the streak that Mansell had, Mansell was driving a car that was 2.2 seconds quicker in qualifying than Ayrton Senna's car and 2.8 seconds quicker than Michael Schumacher's car. This was all at the Brazilian Grand Prix when his uh, laps led streak began. And at no point during all of the races where he led start to finish, was he ever less than a second quicker than Senna and Schumacher. Now, I was a big Nigel Mansell fan, but even I would concede that Nigel Mansell on his own in equal machinery was not a second a lot quicker than Senna and Schumacher. Now contrast that with what Max Verstappen has. He is in a car that is clearly the best car in the field, but he was only on pole, for instance, by 84 thousandths of a second, in Monaco. And while in Spain, one of the ultimate chassis tracks, he was still on pole by 0.4 of a second. That's a relatively small margin. And we are talking about a grid here that in Q1 this season has been barely separated by one second front to back. And compare that with Mansell being two seconds quicker than Senna and Schumacher. uh, And they're in third and fourth on the grid 30 years ago. So it makes it more difficult for Verstappen to establish these huge leads early in a Grand Prix and get away with uh, having a pit stop. And of course, these days, pit stops are mandatory in dry weather because you have to run two different dry compounds. Back in 1992, making a pit stop was an option um, and not a priority. So therefore, it was possible to run non-stop in a Grand Prix and just lead every lap. That's not the case now.
1: Now, with all that in mind, does Verstappen's run stack up very well in the history books how does it look compared to everything else
2: well it's getting into rarefied air now mansell uh in 92 is the next longest streak um for Verstappen to go after beyond that there are only three others uh, both two of them belong to Ayrton and Senna the next the, the next two 237 laps in 1989 264 laps in 1988 The ultimate one is Alberto Ascari. This is one of the oldest standing F1 records, arguably the oldest standing. In 1952, Alberto Ascari led 305 consecutive laps driving a Ferrari 500 Formula 2 car, because that year the World Championship was run to Formula 2 regulations. That car won every World Championship race that it entered in 1952. And in '52, Ascari was able to run up that high score because there were quite high lap counts. The, the length of races was a lot longer back then. So, for instance, at Ruon, it was 76 laps. At Silverstone, it was 85 laps. And at Zandvoort, it was 90 laps. So it was easier to run up uh, a large amount of consecutive laps led uh, if you happen to be the dominant driver of that age, as Ascari was. In the case of and Senna, Well, in 1988, he was driving, of course, the legendary McLaren MP44, which at the time, the only realistic opponent he had was his own teammate, Alain Prost. As I mentioned, tyre stops, not a regular thing at the time. And we could argue that Senna was the greatest qualifier that we have ever seen in Formula 1. He was so often on pole positions, 65 career pole positions, was by far a record. The record was 33 before Senna came along, so he nearly doubled the record. So he would normally assume the lead of a Grand Prix early on and usually stay there uh, for the length of the race uh, unless he hit trouble. Those two streaks I mentioned in 1988, that streak was ended by that very, very famous collision with Jean-Louis Slessor uh, right at the end of the Italian Grand Prix, which cost McLaren the perfect season. That was the only time McLaren lost a Grand Prix in 1988. And in 1989, which was a slightly shorter streak, That uh, run in the lead was ended by a mechanical failure while he was in the lead. So Senna, when he took the lead, very rarely squandered it.
3: Is it better expressed as a percentage of races through a year? rather than necessarily the pure number? We we always have this statistic of number of laps led. Obviously, more Grand Prix races in modern times than there have been uh, throughout historical seasons. I think what will be a really interesting stat, Sean, is the percentage of laps led through their championship-winning years rather than necessarily the the total amount. Do you agree? Well, it is certainly a... I do
2: agree. It is a fairer reflection of dominance. And in fact, you know, another way you could reflect it is uh, actual total distance, whether it be kilometers or miles. And if we do that, Max Verstappen is only ninth uh, on the consecutive list. He's led uh, 927 consecutive kilometers. Um, Alberto Ascari, as I mentioned, 305 laps in the lead is the all-time record. Well, that translates as more than 2,000 kilometers in the lead. So Max Verstappen is actually Only less than halfway uh, to that total. And Ascari's total is way, by far the longest streak in history. Um, Senna is number two on the list, but he's more than 500 kilometers, 600 kilometers behind Ascari. So, you know, it, it, it depends, depends where you measure from, doesn't it? You know, we, the most easiest, the most accessible statistic is consecutive, is consecutive laps in the lead. Everybody can relate to that. That's just how many times you've been around the racetrack. Um, so Verstappen, I would say that the, the consecutive number uh, is probably the most accessible, but perhaps kilometres in a consecutive streak might be considered um, more democratic, shall we say, because of course, you've got to get around a lot more distance uh, when you have longer laps.
1: Sean, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned a little bit earlier um, around Ascari in the 50s. So he, he had this incredibly long streak and it was in a Formula 2 spec car. What? Why was that? For my own personal curiosity, what was the reason it was an F2 spec car? Uh, in 1952
2: and 1953, the World Championship was run to Formula 2 regulations. It was in the aftermath of uh, Alfa Romeo pulling out of Formula 1. They'd been hugely dominant in the first two seasons of F1 with their car. Um, and incidentally, as a side note, Alfa Romeo have still not won a Grand Prix since 1951. So those of you out there rooting for a Valtteri Bottas win, if that ever happens, it'll be the first Alfa win in 72 years. Um, so in, I think, if I if I remember rightly, it was related to the lack of available Formula One entries for 1952, uh, and instead they decided to run things to F2 regulations. Uh, and of course, the thing is that the World Championship was not rooted in Formula One at the time. It was called the World Championship for Drivers. It was not called the FIA Formula One World Championship until officially 1981. Um, so uh, at the time they could run it to anything. That's also the reason why the Indianapolis 500 was part of the World Championship. Uh, in the 1950s, even though that was never a Formula One race. And that still causes a statistical anomaly when somebody says, ah, but Troy Rutman won a Formula One race. No, he did not. He won a world championship event in the Indy 500. It was never a Formula One race. It was just part of the world championship for drivers.
1: Now, there's been some quiet rumblings about Max Verstappen not necessarily being in the sport long term. If he does continue for many more years, though, do you think he's just going to break pretty much every record going? It's hard to bet
2: against it right now, given his relative youth, the fact that he's doing these things at age 25. But I would put a cautionary tale on it, and that is there was a point 10 years ago. Well, you would have asked me the same question about Sebastian Vettel. And he was at roughly the same age. And we would have thought, well, this is it now. Vettel's gonna be all of Schumacher's records. And did he do it? No, Lewis Hamilton did it instead because the balance of power swung away from Red Bull at the end of the V8 era and went to Mercedes. Uh, and therefore Lewis Hamilton was able to rack up a whole load of wins. Uh, and we ended up talking about Hamilton being the all-time record holder Where we would have thought it was Vettel and Vettel's career after moving to Ferrari slowed down and then of course post-Ferrari in terms of success numbers really stalled altogether. So while it looks on a Monday morning after this Canadian Grand Prix, after yet another crushing performance by Verstappen, it might look like, well, Verstappen's just going to sweep every record. We have been here before and it's proven to be false.
3: I think when you are the dominant driver in the dominant car In terms of a negotiating position to get what you want out of the sport, what can you do? You can't say, I'm going to move to another team because you're already in the best team. You can't say uh, really anything other than, hey, guys, I'm going to disappear. And so I do think that we rather see this threat of leaving the sport from, a, you know, a world champion who does carry with them so much fan support, so much fan engagement from, from their specific group and in general. And actually what you're seeing is almost the only thing that they can say at from their position to be effective a, a, and generate the changes they want in the sport. Would you agree, Sean?
2: Yeah, I mean, we obviously cross reference the fact that Nigel Mansell is the next person on the list in terms of longest streak in the lead of a Grand Prix. Of course, in 1992, Nigel Mansell ended up rather um, impulsively announcing a retirement. I say impulsively. It was the second time he'd actually tried to retire from Grand Prix racing and the second time he failed to do so because he came back. Um, But that was the only option left to him in 1992. There was no other drive available that was going to be anywhere near as dominant as the one that he had. And Williams knew that. And of course, they painted him into a corner with the negotiations because they knew they had Prost and Senna on speed dial saying, please, can we drive the car? Um, and then again, 12 months later, of course, when Alain Prost was in the car uh, and Senna was coming along, uh, Prost decided it was time to call it a day uh, rather than face the music against Senna again after their uh, tempestuous relationship at McLaren. So, uh, yeah, that is probably... It, it, I mean, it's unreasonable to expect Max Verstappen to decide, you know what, I'm going to go back to Williams. I'm going to go over to Williams and, build, and rebuild the empire at Williams after I've been winning all these races. So yeah, I mean, where do you go from the top? It's just, in, in Vettel's case, for instance, I don't think he was ever, no, none of us ever thought he'd leave Red Bull until such a time as they became uncompetitive, which they did in 2014. And then suddenly Daniel Ricciardo came along and really smashed Vettel in that first year uh, with the hybrid power, won three Grand Prix. Vettel didn't win a race. And that was when Vettel finally decided it's time for a change.
1: Now on this list of um, the, the longest streaks, we've got the Ascari, Senna, Senna and Mansell. There's some obvious omissions here. There's, there's no Michael Schumacher mentioned. There's no Lewis Hamilton featured on the list. Given their dominance in the statistics, where are they? Why, do, why aren't they up there? Yeah, it's a good question. Why, why, how, how did they manage to dominate
2: the all-time wins table and yet not, domi- not dominate the consecutive laps led table? Well, it's all a matter of the rules at the time because Michael Schumacher's dominance of Formula 1 began in 1994 which coincidentally was the year that refueling was introduced into Formula One. So that meant you had more pit stops and it meant you had an incentive to pit earlier to stay on fuel strategy if you're running a three-stopper. Schumacher's Benetton team were always very aggressive of running three-stop strategies and so on. Um, So that means that a driver would not necessarily have a big enough lead to, to come into the pits and emerge with the lead. And only a few races into that, of course, came Imola, after which we had a pit lane speed limit introduced which greatly increased the amount of time you lost at a pit stop. So therefore, it became much harder to lead start to finish. And to write Schumacher's career, um, of his 91 wins, only 11 of them came when he led every lap of a Grand Prix. It became very difficult for Schumacher to lead start to finish. And with Lewis Hamilton, well, his career began in the refueling era as well, because that was banned at the end of 2009. He'd already won a world title in 08. But he didn't start really hitting the big numbers until uh, Mercedes and the start of the hybrid era in 2014. And although he would be very invariably quicker than Nico Rosberg, Rosberg was, of course, um, a phrase I often use, inconveniently quick for Lewis Hamilton. And that meant he would often pip into pole position. You know, he would often be ahead of him periodically during a race, during, as the tyre strategies would play out, because of course now we don't have refuelling, but we have to run two different compounds of dry tyre. So that means you're going to have to make a pit stop at some point during the race. And if you look at the time that he was with Nico Rosberg, well, Hamilton won 31 races uh, in that, uh, from 2014 to 2016, but only seven of them were from start to finish. So that makes it very difficult to run up a, uh, a streak of consecutive laps in the lead. After Rosberg retired, Valtteri Bottas uh, got in the car. Occasionally, you know, he could take pole position. He was very good in qualifying, I admit. But also from 2017 onwards, we've seen an increasing use of safety car, an increasing use of virtual safety car, and also red flags. Now, all of those things can randomize the order uh, almost at the click of a finger, click of your fingers. So that makes it more difficult again to lead a race from start to finish because the order is prone to randomization. As soon as a safety car comes out and everyone dives into the pits and so on. Uh, And that's why, even with 103 Grand Prix victories, Lewis Hamilton has never led more than 144. So Verstappen now at 224 to give you context of that number. So Hamilton, yeah, that's one of the records that um it's probably going to annoy him, I think. That he's got all these uh, success records and then Verstappen comes along and does something that appears um you know at, at first glance to be far more impressive.
1: I suppose the word appears there is quite an important one because it is about appearance. When you first look at it on paper, you think, well, Verstappen is clearly the better driver. But when you start going into the detail, that's clearly not necessarily the case. And following on from that, I'm going to put you both on the spot here from both a statistical and a driver perspective. Who do you think is the better driver out of Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton? Alex, let's get your driver's take on it first.
3: On which day in history, uh, around which track, in which two cars, um, with which race engineers and which mechanics. I mean, it's just it's a massively expansive question um, to, to, to speak in probably ex- unprofessionally general terms. Um, I think as we sit right now in 2023 Formula One, Max Verstappen has an edge of speed. Over Lewis Hamilton total speed with the package he's got, uh, Lewis Hamilton is probably better, slightly better in terms of his management of risk, uh, racecraft, ability to manage the tyre. Um, I think set across the garage from each other, you would have a Max Verstappen pole position. Um, you would then have a battle royale across uh, Grand Prix distance of which the winner would be determined by whether Hamilton stuck a move uh, on Verstappen from behind and how the pit crews did. Uh, and that's that's my general feeling. If you put them across the garage in Team X together, a dominant team at the front of the field. Love that
1: analysis. Sean, go on then.
2: Well, I don't have the luxury, of course, of, of seeing it from a driver's perspective. I only have it from the point of view of... of- being on the sidelines and and having uh, various statistical categories to measure from. And I would say that, of course, there are many drivers who probably had the raw speed to be in the position that Verstappen and Hamilton are. But, you know, circumstances worked against them. Lest we forget, at the end of the Senna film, when Senna was asked who he enjoyed racing against the most, he named Terry Fullerton, who was a kart driver who never got anywhere near Formula One. Um, With that said, I can only measure using my statistics. I can only measure using longevity, ultimate success, and so forth. And I would say, well, Lewis Hamilton, I have to put him ahead of Max Verstappen simply for longevity. Um, You know, Hamilton has won races across, what, 14 seasons, 15 seasons in his Grand Prix career. Um, And although he's in a bit of a rut right now, because, of course, Red Bull are running away with it, or Verstappen particularly, it's hard for me to place Verstappen above him because of what Hamilton has repeatedly achieved over so many years. So that's that's my tiebreaker, if you will. The fact that Hamilton has, has done this for so long. He's not a flash in the pan, um, you know, he's been literally on top for decades. Uh, of course, that's not to say that Verstappen is inferior. It's just simply if I had to choose one or the other, I would choose Hamilton for that reason.
1: And what we wouldn't give to have them both in the same team one day. What drama that would create. Good stuff, Sean. Another spectacular segment. And as ever, if you want to get in touch with the show, set Sean a statistical teaser or Alex a performance poser, drop us a line on social media using hashtag AramcoF1Focus. Right, now it's time to learn more about the fine margins that separate the good from the great in Alex's performance focus. Alex, what have you got for us today?
3: I found Canada an incredibly interesting race. The overtake was there, but every single move carried a percentage with it, a percentage chance of error. And every single lap of that Grand Prix, drivers were engaging with each other, whether that was directly on track or dropping back into a gap. It was a very interesting race for race management. And I think you saw drivers like Fernando Alonso, drivers like Lewis Hamilton, who have that ability to manage their pace and the car um, throughout a race distance come to the fore. So often we hear Formula One fans say, I just want to hear them all, dri- I just want to see them all drive flat out for a full Grand Prix distance. But from a driver's perspective, some of the best ability, some of the most exciting action on track are watching the great drivers manage an issue and still deliver the result put a car in a position it should never have deserved to be in and I think we saw that for a couple of instances in Canada
1: okay so we're talking about race management then so let's break that down what does that actually mean to the layman
3: I want to give you an example. Late on in the race, Fernando Alonso struggling, as many drivers do, with uh, with brake overheating, rear brake overheating in Canada. He's got Lewis Hamilton bearing down on him on a new set of mediums, setting fastest lap after fastest lap of the race. Alonso is managing the gap, managing the brake temperature, managing a set of hard tyres, using the resources in he, he can in the car Just to keep Lewis Hamilton on the end, on the edge of a two second jab by the time they reach the end of the race. Now, if he had been frightened by the fact Hamilton was catching him so quickly and over pushed the brakes, he could have had some nasty front lockups in the way we saw Lance Stroll do down into the hairpin at the far end of the track past the the Stroll grandstand late on in the race. But he didn't. He kept his head beautifully and just used the laps remaining and the gap he needed to keep Hamilton on the end of the jab. That was the perfect example of managing the problem using the resources to achieve the result because all you've got to do is be ahead on the final lap. And it was an understanding of that that put Alonso ahead. Yeah, he's
1: the master at that sort of thing, isn't he? And at one point on the radio, I think he even said something like, don't worry, leave it with me. And, and he, off he went. He just knew exactly what he was doing. Now, where, where do drivers learn this race management? Presumably, this is the importance of, of certain junior categories and, 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 and putting yourself in a good team to help you learn that craft. So is it learned or is it something that you either have or you don't?
3: and it's such an interesting question because i really feel that that is one of the great failings of the junior series as they stand uh, race management is something you learn when the series is angled towards the fan not towards the drivers because as soon as you have a series like you know f4 f3 where you start you know from from the line and the series is geared to find out which driver is driving the fastest there's there's not really that much to manage you're not dealing with pit stops you're not dealing with multiple compounds of tyre you're you're dealing with the racetrack and when to overtake and when not to overtake but that's very much instinctive those moments where you have to manage brakes tires fuel when to stop when not to stop the communication with the team and the organization with your teammate only really come at a level above formula two over to indycar the world endurance championship somewhere like super formula or up in formula one and and i really do think that's why you see the older drivers you know your your Lewis Hamilton driving uh, a set of inters in Turkey until they become slicks, and understanding the uh, the the management of that. Your your Fernando Alonso managing issues through to the end of the race, coming to a fore in terms of their race craft. Whereas you see the newest crop of young drivers. Uh, an example that jumps immediately to mind is Mick Schumacher, who's trying to drive as fast as he can all the time keep the car out of the wall uh, and not have any kind of issue struggle more with the nuances of the curveballs of the things that the organizers put into formula one races and top level motorsport event to keep the fans entertained because that's what you're doing at the end of the day you're organizing the curveballs to work in your direction
2: Alex, I mean, speaking of that, you mentioned the difference between how Alonso and Stroll were handling situations there with the brakes. Uh, were there any other um, nuances that you discovered or noticed between different drivers, not necessarily even within the same team, but just how drivers compared and contrasted with how the situation was changing during the Grand Prix?
3: Yeah, a couple of really interesting scenarios. The first one was the interplay around Lando Norris' five-second penalty towards the end of the race with McLaren. And what you could see there was... Uh, uh, an understanding of the scenario for McLaren this is kind of your you've got a bit of a red amber green if if, if Alonso is absolutely delivering and he's in the green bucket of drivers who are really managing the race beautifully and absolutely nailing it this is your amber this is your papaya uh, scenario if you like um uh, they told Lando about the five second penalty all of a sudden he's in the big queue behind Alex Albon who's driving a beautiful race with a bit of extra straight line speed in the Williams and keeping the mid back pack behind they tell Lando and all of a sudden Lando clocks and realizes hold on a minute I'm at the back end of the top 10 I've also got a five second penalty this lot are stacking up behind Alex Albon I now And you saw it dawn on him with about 10 or 15 laps to go. I now actually have nothing to lose. So I might as well send it and just starts sending moves down the inside. Now, if he'd started that process after the final round of pit stops and and started to make his way through there's a good chance he might have been able to clear Alban using a bit of the uh using a bit of the energy management trickery we know Lando Norris is so brilliant at with organizing the energy system to give him the overspeed in the DRS zones he started a little bit late didn't quite get to the front as a result with the five second penalty he drops back in the red category I give you K-Mag and Nick DeVries who go full Soper Cleland BTCC down at turn one in what is an entirely unnecessary wheel banging session, really over a non-position. Then they have had every likelihood of cruising up to the rear of Alex Albon and being in the hunt for points as well, but they just don't put themselves in that position because they've had an entirely necessary tour guided tour down the runoff area uh, at uh, at turn four and uh, and therefore put themselves out of the running so red alonso papaya lando norris uh, sorry green alonso papaya lando norris red k mag and nick De Vries in this instance
1: Love your amazing your traffic reference, lights. By the way. yeah! A, fa- a fantastic reference. There t- two rounds of applause there. One for your 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 traffic light system with the papaya, and then the the British touring car reference. Uh, serious applause for that one. Um, for those that can't see, that had Sean Kelly falling off his off his chair. Um, now, is there is there a formula, Alex, for the perfect race management strategy? You know, is there like a uh, a textbook race strategy one or one, or do you have to be agile with it and be able to adapt during the race? Uh, it, it
3: there isn't and that's why it's called management you know you're there there are no two scenarios in a race that are exactly the same but what you can do is collect a load of different experiences in a sort of You know, in a group, put them together and then start to blend them with, you know, that time where I lost, I overheated the rear brakes, which overheated the rear tyres and I suffered with too much rear tyre wear and therefore I actually moved the brake bias to the front for example, uh, put some of that energy through the front brakes and then balanced it out and therefore had more longevity on the tire. That's one experience. You can put it on a bottle in a bottle on your shelf and you can take it out again when that happens another time. So it's all about building that sequence of experiences in organizing your races and then mixing them together at the right moment. But I suppose the formula for race management, uh, is is that extra little bit? And the, the fame, the most famous reference for this is Michael Schumacher. I can't. I think it might well have been Ross Braun who said this. Uh, who you know, by fable, could drive a race at racing speed faster than everybody else, and also had the extra capacity to run the race for the team now they don't have to run the race for the team anymore they don't have to pick when they're going to stop they don't have to necessarily run the strategy but what they have to do is manage the stint strategically to make sure they're using all of the tools inside the car to think 25 30 laps into the future and give themselves the best possible performance so that extra capacity along with a very good Uh, method of communication with the team to understand where the car is, how the driver's feeling and what they've got underneath them is hugely beneficial. And I think if you had to pick one key to winning on race day in a modern Formula One car, that that would really be it alongside uh, the basic pace of the car.
1: Now you, you mentioned experience there. That's obviously a key part of it. But are, are there certain drivers that are so good that they just don't think about race management in, in this way? They don't use their experience. They, they don't have to make these quick decisions through the experience they've learned. They've just got it. Can, they, can some of them just do it by default?
3: I think it's close enough. I mean, it's so interesting to hear Sean's stats about how close various years of Formula One were. And of course, as an audience base, we always complain oh, you know, Verstappen's winning every weekend. Yeah, remember when they used to win by laps, not seconds, guys. Um, but I think only when you're in the Verstappen position of having so much in hand. And of course, That race management job is about consolidating advantage as much as anything else, you know building your castle walls so high that actually by lap 45 of a 70 lap race, you've built yourself an unassailable position. You know, you've got yourself covered off every which way and and nobody can undercut. If the undercut's on, nobody can overcut. If the overcut's on and all you've got to do. Realistically, what you're talking about, that wing it position is the dream. It's more the goal of race management than it is not having to undertake it. Um, But if you've got so much in hand that you don't need to do it, you're just so, so quick as a package. Yes. But realistically, every driver from second position back, every driver who finishes within five seconds of another driver has had a long conversation with their team about how to cover off every strategic permutation of the drivers ahead and behind. So the answer broadly and, uh, and in long terms or in short terms is no. Yeah, I don't I really don't think you can.
1: And there are obviously many, many examples of, of good and bad race management. What are perhaps some examples or um, or activities that lead to poor race management?
3: I think you know n- not understanding the cliff of the tire is the is the obvious one. It, it doesn't happen so much anymore, and I think that's a, a nature of you know how much the teams understand the product uh, from Pirelli and how much. Uh, that that communication level has improved. But I think, you know, in Bahrain Grand prix gone par- gone by, we have seen those drivers with that exponential loss of pace, the tyre just absolutely falling away. Um, now, having to retire cars due to issues of brake wear, or I think it was, it would have been the the, the very early days of no refuelling. Were, were quite interesting as well because you did get teams teams obviously famously under fueling cars uh, to, to to allow for the reality that it's actually better to uh, to carry less fuel for the entire race and gamble on a safety car or something which is going to maintain and then have the driver save a little fuel through to the end of the race um, than it is to fill the car for green and end up with too much fuel and at the end and thus carry that fuel all, all the way Through to the checker, but in the early days of of refueling being switched off in Formula One, we saw teams in big trouble uh, to 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 purely get to the end of the race, and that's a communication between team and driver uh, that's that's gone wrong in terms of how much fuel they're using. So those are a few examples. You've got basic resources in the car: the tyres, the brakes, the fuel, the engine. Any one of those you know, expires before the end of the race, I mean, at risk of saying the obvious, you've got your race management pretty wrong, haven't you?
1: Now, I would imagine that a very large portion or percentage of race management is down to the driver themselves. But how much impact does the team have as well?
3: Uh, A huge amount of impact. I mean, uh, cast your mind back a Grand Prix ago to the team, asking Yuki Tsunoda Um, if you wanted more rotation or if you wanted more stability. The team always have the full list of controls on the steering wheel in the car available. They also have those little adjustments that they can make uh, in the pit stops as well to things like the front wing, a click more or a click less to give the driver that opportunity to, to, to change the car and manage the car through its stints. So the portion of this, which is on the driver is to understand where the car is at, communicate with the team and then do the driving style elements. The things that can't be changed uh, by the team throughout the stint, in order to manage, in order to generate the balance that they want. So if you have, un- if you want a little bit more stability, there are ways to drive understeer into the car. If you want a little bit more rotation, there are ways to drive oversteer into the car. And that's what's on the driver. What's on the team is to do everything they need strategically and then advise the driver those extra little elements that they haven't thought of, which might help their plight in order to uh, to generate Uh, That balance, so it's a continuous communication, and that's why radio systems in Formula One latch on and latch off rather than being a button press, because those communications are longer.
2: Alex, I'm fascinated by your forensic examination of this whole uh, topic. You probably don't appreciate, as a driver, that those of us who are slightly blokish and are standing on the sidelines don't fully appreciate all of this sort of stuff um is this is this how you watch a race are you watching a race and always thinking oh well this is happening he's doing he's having to manage this you know because we we're just sitting there going you know can can Hamilton not get past Alonso?" it's all very simple to us but to you there's a million and one things going
3: on all at once all moving parts I mean the the moment uh yes and it and it's a curse Uh, (laughs) as much as much as anything it's a joy to watch as well I mean the moment where Stroll Uh, had that little lock-up at the back of the train behind Albon, and Alonso was clearly lift-coasting at the front in the other Aston Martin. To a driver, it's so clear that Stroll has slightly overheated the rear brakes, which has reduced their efficiency, and therefore has had a double front lock-up because the front brakes have been asked to do more of the stopping, which has overcome the contact patch of the front tyres. Scroll's also been in more of a train, so his overheating has happened quicker. Whereas Alonso's out front in clean air, um, so his overheating has happened slower. Those elements are clear, um, and it. But it's only clear through such painful experience, which is the curse. Because it's happened to you and you failed because of it. And that's why it's ingrained in your mind like the ten commandments, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that because of the because of the fear of loss and the great loss which it's caused you. And 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 that's why, you know. But um, yes, that's that's the way I watch races, unfortunately.
1: It is fascinating, Alex, how this all fits together. I guess it comes down to experience, ability to make quick decisions, communicate effectively with your team and you're halfway there. But I suppose one area we haven't even got into and we're not going to have time on this one is, I guess, the mentality of the driver as well. If you've got a hothead driver who can't necessarily keep his cool during a race and everything goes out the window, no matter how good your, your plan or strategy may be. Um, it's a fascinating deep dive, but we're going to have to leave it there for now um, and perhaps let our listeners take up the baton on social media. Right, we've reached the Aramco focus section of the show, and that means it's time for me to surprise Alex and Sean with our special guest. It's none other than Gary Anderson, former F1 technical director, co-host of the Race F1 Tech Show, and chair of judges for F1 in schools. Now, have you ever wondered where the next Adrian Newey is coming from? Well... If there ever is another, there's a good chance they'll get their start in F1 in Schools, an international STEM competition for school children in which groups of three to six students have to design and manufacture a miniature car using CAD design tools. Of course, the ultimate goal for every team is to become the best in their respective country and earn the right to compete at the Aramco F1 in Schools World Final. But, as Gary explains, F1 in Schools is about far more than winning.
0: I've always liked having youth coming into the sport because I think that's where you get the the next generation of ideas. Being involved with F1 in schools, as I have been for now, must be 12 years or something, my job is to be the, the chair of judges at the World Championships, at the World Finals, which this year is in Singapore, the weekend before the Grand Prix. We've actually got something like 80 teams coming to this year's World Finals and each team will consist of up to six people, maybe between four and six people. So, you know, you've got 300, 400 clever people coming and it's not just one discipline, it's not just engineering, it's not just building these little cars that race down the track. It's a whole lot, the whole discipline is about finding the money, organizing yourself, managing yourself, doing all the research required. You have to prove all this stuff to to our judges. It's a very good learning curve for life because it incorporates everything that you'll be hit with when you get into industry. What does F1 in schools teach young people about real world engineering? Well, it teaches them everything that really goes on. It it is about being disciplined in how you go about things. You can't just forget everything else and just look at one part of it. You have to look at everything. about innovative thinking about how you go about trying to raise that those finances obviously the car itself is the engineering side and that's what I really enjoy being involved in because engineering is the future for us all um, we're never going to get anywhere without solid sound engineers and the earlier you can learn about it the more of your life you can put into it It's not just to get into Formula One but it's to get into life in general Hopefully F1 in Schools gives a wide range of opportunity for these young students coming through to select the correct thing in life that will satisfy their needs in the future because that's what you need to have. You need to have a job that you want to get up in the morning and go to. And hopefully F1 in Schools helps them decide that.
1: There you are. That was F1 in school's chair of judges, Gary Anderson, and we'll have another illuminating guest for you in our next episode. Well, that's about it for today's show, but we'll be back with you again soon for more stats, more performance chat, and more F1 fun. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow, or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Sean, what's next for you? Another flight? Another flight. I've got Portland coming up this weekend for Formula E and then back
2: to Europe. We've got the Austrian Grand Prix coming up the weekend after that. The hits just keep on coming.
1: Well, enjoy Portland. Uh, I'm a bit envious, actually. A place I'd like to go to. And um, having been to uh, a Formula E race this year um, in Berlin, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, Alex, more driving and commentating on the agenda for you?
3: yeah i'm i'm going going historic at le mans classic and then i will be back um not in austria but i'll be back for the british grand prix and i can't wait to see the Br- i'm going to be uh, at silverstone for that one so i can't wait to see the british fans out in force
1: fantastic well thank you both as ever for joining me until next time it's goodbye from alex goodbye goodbye from sean bye for now and goodbye from me goodbye
0: athletic